From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to a Zoom presentation. We've been coming to you via Zoom since March. We've got the whole crew here. Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner. This is Cade Massey. Appreciate you being here. Going to do two hours as we are lately. First quarter on coronavirus, maybe a little bit of election. We've got a, a little election statistical stuff bouncing around. Got some new big coronavirus stuff bouncing around. And then we'll move into the sports segments in the second and third quarter. Fourth quarter, we've moved into kind of a fourth quarter interview format. We've got Brian Burke from ESPN talking football analytics in the last quarter of the show. Gentlemen, good afternoon to you. I hope you're well. Curious around the world of elections. Let's start with elections. Is there anything lingering, interesting from an analytics or statistics perspective? Adi? Yeah, there, there is an interesting uh, kind of meme that's gotten a lot of attention. In fact, some actual articles that were written to rebut it. Um, it's a notion of Benford's law, which is, which is a way to look for frequency of digits to see if there's uh, kind of tampering or kind of fraud. It's, it's common in certain areas to look for it as a starting point. It's, used, got, in, it's used by the IRS all the time. Yeah, and it's used, it's used to people who are making up numbers. The, the first digit is supposed to come with a certain frequency, the second digit, too, with a certain frequency. It's, not a, it's more a heuristic than, of course, it is a law, although it's called a, the Benford's Law. And it was applied to the vote counts in various um, counties and, and districts uh, throughout the country. Okay. And, it, and it looked like uh, that Trump's ballots seemed to follow it, but, but um, Biden's ballots didn't. It, it was nonsense, and it's been thoroughly re- rebutted, uh, mostly because Benford's Law won't necessarily follow with the first digit if, which is, if that digit is directly proportional to, say, population or number of voters. Um, and if you're winning two-thirds of the votes, you might always have your digit of two or three, and then the loser might start with one. And so it's, it, it's, 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 it's actual nonsense, but it went around and it got to pretty high levels, and people actually wrote an, you know, real serious research articles explaining why it's nonsense. Um, most people are are concerned that that, that uh, the Trump uh, administration is trying to hang on uh, really threads at this point. You don't say. Well, you, no, yeah, you don't <laughs> say. <laughs> so uh, we 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 have some serious efforts still going on in some places. So, for example, the Georgia Georgia is doing a full recount, and um, various parties are lobbying for methods. There's kind of a methodology question that exists in lots mm-hmm. of corners of the country. Um, what what is what is the deal with the sampling strategies that that have emerged, Adi? Well, well, see what what I think the Republicans are realizing is that it's much more productive to sample rather than try to enumerate, which is go and try to find everything and validate, check, et cetera. And well, then, well, pro- specifically to check, sense. I mean, specifically, you mean to check the accuracy of individual yeah, ballots, so you, not not as the actual count. The count has to cannot be a sample, obviously. No, the count, no, but actually the accuracy. So there's yeah. lots of issues with individual battles. Ballots are provisional. Um, sometimes they're not counted. Sometimes there's, you know, there's there's always after, you know, allegations that the person was dead or voted twice. This takes a lot of research into a, ba- a single ballot. And it's crazy to try to do that to, for everyone. It's too impractical. So what they finally realize is that the right thing to do is sample, um, take a subset. So hold on, hold on. A couple of things. You said Republicans realize productive, which sounds loaded. And now you've said the right thing and, 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 you're, and it's not, not party, party specific. No, it's not. No. Yeah. Right. This is not a party 
specific thing. It's no, just, and every, it's everyone's like entitled to more... make the best defense they can, and I'm not against that. Um, they've realized that the right thing to do is to sample among the ballots, which are essentially enumerated because they did count them. And then you can just take a, a, a sample randomly. Of, and you don't even need a large one. If you're trying to, I mean, the, the deficits are what they are. Um, they probably could actually figure out exactly how many they need to sample to have conclusive proof with a certain power. And it's probably not more than hundreds. And they, and they investigate those that random sample. They should be able to pretty much learn what we, I think, all know is that uh, the, the, the lead is insurmountable. Well, not only that, I want to contrast that with what was done is you probably have seen in Georgia, except for one district, that it turns out they didn't upload some flash drive. Mm. Um, the counts were exact. Yep. I mean, when I say exact, I mean... You mean exact. I mean exact. I mean the, the, uh, the hand ballot counting and the uh, automatic machine counting were exactly the same number. Mm. And I think Adi's point is that also, let's imagine your goal. It doesn't matter, Democrat or Republican was to maximize the probability of finding something. Well, the best way to do it is if you have a fixed pile of money and resources, which you always do, you'd be better sampling across the entire country, taking those same resources, finding where you observe something that appears to be outside of some error bound, and then going deeper into that in like a second stage than to say, mm. I'm going to go, I need to measure 100% of the entire yeah. set of ballots in this one county. It doesn't make sense from a decision theoretic point of view. But, but I mean, that's I, I, that's, I guess, if your objective function is trying to find evidence of fraud or, or, or bad well, counting I mean, somewhere in the US, right? I mean, clearly, if they find it, in California, that's not going to be a particular like if, they, no, they're if, not if their objective looking. function is trying to like you know basically you know change the the, the results of the election. Right, but that's but it's nice nationwide. To, that's right, but it's nice to hear if we if we had a policy, for example, of a country who was still trying to figure out how to do this, or if there was a global concern about the security of the election. Right, what might we do in an yeah. even-handed, neutral way? What would that look like? So it's it's really nice to think of it in that way as a standard against which to look against which to compare what we're actually seeing. Which, Shane, what you're also talking about is it depends on, like, you didn't use the word, but you were implying the word, the thing I care about the most is the presidential election. Right. Of course, my strategy could say, wow, I wonder who won mayor of this, or wow, I wonder who won this congressional race. So I'm yeah. agreeing with you. All I'm saying is you're right. From a purely presidential decision, theoretic point of view, there are certain states you shouldn't even bother. It's not- No, even- and, I, and I mean, as, as Kate Kahn pointed out, from like kind of almost like a scientific, like learning kind of point of view, if there's a way in which these whole th- this whole kind of counting operation can be improved for future elections, you'd kind of want to survey across the entire nation and see where it's going particularly goes particularly well or particularly badly. Like, I mean, whatever whatever procedure they're using with those machines down in Georgia, such that the hand count is exactly right, that seems like the you know <laughs> that that's an example of something we might want to emulate in the future. Right. All right, the, guys. Issue, the issue with the, with the count is not the, the total the issue is the ballots. And I actually spoke to someone from the Republican kind of legal team um, and they they're very freaked out about this massive um, mail in ballots. And now, of course, I'm, I responded by saying, you know, Pennsylvania did it for the first time, but many states have been doing this for a while. It's not exactly new all over. And but they kind of had this conspiratorial view vision of it that somehow this thing was uh, um, this endeavor was launched as a way to to backdoor an election. Um, And and it's kind of nuts because it just shows you the gulf between the parties and mostly actually have on COVID. um, And and which is a good segue to what we're about to talk about is they kind of viewed the whole idea of mail-in ballots to be totally unnecessary. 
We didn't need well, to I mean, do cer- it. Can- certainly it, it does go, go against their usual just disenfranchisement strategy, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. making well, it easier, now, well, making it easier because the counter argument that is making it easier to vote is, you know, <laughs> so, like not going to do them a service. That I think to be fair, we have, you know, 250 years of voting in this country. So there's a fair bit of confidence in the traditional method. And it does seem like a very secure, you know, you go into a booth and you put a piece of paper in a slot that's pretty secure that's different than putting something in the mail we've all had experience yeah. of putting things in the mail and it going away and we've i mean we, we we have a different history with that and so i think it i mean just to be fair it is a new voting methodology and it will naturally take some time to have the same credibility as something that we've been doing for 200 years i just want to point out to adi's point just so you know i believe the state of utah has been doing mail-in ballots for over 20 years mm-hmm. i believe the state of nevada um Again, that you don't have to request it. They send out 100%. That's been done for about 15 or 16 years. But your point is well taken, Kate. Um, as a matter of fact, one thing any individual has to decide, and I'm sure, by the way, people in Pennsylvania thinking about this different than California, if I'm in Pennsylvania, like I, I don't mind saying, I filled out a mail-in ballot, but then I chose to go the effort and put it in a drop box. Yeah, I right. thought that would maximize. I wasn't willing to take the risk that right. my vote wouldn't count. And so that, again, I, it's not, that's not partisan. It's just, you know, everyone has to make decisions, but states have been doing mail-in balloting for 20 plus years. Right. Now. And it's good. Again, as far as learning the best way to do this, it's good. We're kind of experimenting different states yes. and trying out different things. Right. That's I mean, right. I think or- Oregon's completely online, right. Or it has, I, I, I what? Oregon's is that right? completely online for a couple election cycles now. Wow, that's so, surprising. I, I just to elaborate, because Pennsylvania did this late, somewhat late. I mean, and this is the first time that Pennsylvania did it, and it's a contested state, and it was, it's a total swing state. But the Democratic strategy, and I know this intimately, because as my daughter was a worker for the campaign, is that they were actively recruiting people to mail in their ballot. And they were very worried and about... You know, they, the, the, the argument went like this is, you know, um, and li- literally, dad, it's not a big deal for you to vote in Montgomery County down at the church near down the street. There's not going to be lines. There won't be an issue for you to get in. Um, and you'll have social distancing, which will be observed. You'll have to be safe. But where I'm working in Upper Darby or Darby or down and down in the neighborhoods um, outside of Philly, they don't even know where their polling place might be until the last minute. They, they, they can't be guaranteed um, locations that are safe and, 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 and staffed. And, and so lines won't be long. And so the actual argument was to get as many people to vote by mail and ballot as they could. And so naturally it went overwhelmingly towards Biden. It was That's a strategy by the Democrats to do this. Oh, it's not but, even but, but strategy, I think- Adi, is that if you look at the probability of someone voting democratic as a function of density and safety mm-hmm. that's that's the correlation you can look yeah. at and say of course yeah. people that i mean this is not a part it's bigger than ever it, this year was way bigger than a traditional the gap been. between matter of fact people have talked about this now mm-hmm. we don't and I, it was a really interesting statistical article we don't have a red state blue state issue we have a large city rural issue in the united yeah. states that's actually where the biggest gap is it's not red state blue state though those correlate incredibly highly all right guys what about coronavirus so last week we talked about the big news from pfizer this week we have in some sense even bigger news because it's another one it's even more effective supposedly and it's easier to um, distribute. So any, any reaction to the Moderna news, 94.5% effective. We have a so, second, 
so I'll just jump in quickly. Um, Adi's been chirping on this since we started talking about COVID to begin with. Let's be clear. 94.5% effective doesn't mean if a 50-year-old, 50-plus-year-old Eric Bradlow takes it and an 83-year-old Mary Smith takes it, that they're going to have the same degree of effectiveness. So if you look at the sample sizes of that study, we've talked about this heterogeneity. How much heterogeneity is there in effectiveness? Um, what, how long does it last? Does it prevent you from being a spreader is something I was reading about today. It might prevent you from getting symptoms, but does it, could you still actually get it and spread it to somebody else? So there's a lot that's unknown, but I just want to say that 94.5% isn't for all populations. And I think that's something we need to learn, but obviously it's a big number. That's a huge number. It is a big, it is yeah. a big number, but I think it's interesting because it's going to be hard to ramp up um, and even get to 10, 20 million doses is, uh, quickly. And then, of course, 60, 300 million, however many. That's a long way off. I think it's a really important question. Who gets it? And what is the most efficient way to do it? And I actually think it's a little bit um, the, way, the way that people are talking about it. I, I'm personally not sure that's the best strategy. Because so, for example, I, I understand healthcare workers. It may, that makes a lot of sense. There's, you know, four or five million um, frontline doctors, nurses, et cetera, that, that, that probably should be the first candidates. But the next thing is, do you go to nursing homes? Is that really the right thing to do? Or do you, um, because they're not, they're the, the end recipients. To me, the right thing to do is get the people who are spreading it, right? Yeah. And, and Adi, that's Adi, right. You, you know, I know you know this. Yeah. This is what people in network science study all the time, right. which is, you know, we all agree the healthcare workers <laughs> they should get it first. Yeah. But, you know, there's all kinds of network centrality measures. There's all kinds of people, not just that, mobility measures. You're right. You would never give it to the people if, if, if your goal, again, let's be clear, your, it depends what your objective function is. Is your goal to save the most lives? Is your goal to save the most vulnerable people? Is your goal to give reduce society the back, cases right? the most because um for example if you cared just about uh, the number of lives mm -hmm. you would never give it to someone aged let's say six to 25 or 30 until dead last they're the it, last one on the other hand so let me ask here's let's, let's put it right down in our own home court who should get uh, vaccinated first the teachers or the students so it's a good question because you would think that two teachers, because we're more vulnerable for, for illness. On the other hand, we're not the ones probably bringing it out. It's more likely to come from them to us rather than the other way around. I mean, I just know from behavior, having my own 18 to 24 year olds. Wait, at home, wait, sorry, sorry to interrupt, Audie, but teachers like have actually more points of con more you more unique points of contact than students would in like, say, like a elementary school. Uh, well, not, not students well, all kind of go to class. I, I think they travel all through classes together and they hit a, a few different teachers. At least that was what, how my elementary yeah, no, school but, but basically what, I, what I'm saying is, is that it's the, the spread is coming from the students and maybe not the elementary school. They have their own sort of patterns. But if I think about who's more dangerous, I'm much more likely to get it from my MBAs than get it from you, from my, from my colleagues, for example. Yeah. Right. So if, if we were all vaccinated, I think I would be a lot safer to go back to class. Uh, no, less safe than if the MBAs were not vaccinated, because I don't think I'm getting it from guys like from from you guys. I'm much more likely if I were to come back to class to get it from my students. Or am I just talking hot air? Well, I mean, I, I think I, I, it's 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 a complex dynamic, right? Because, yes, right. you are less likely to get it. You are more likely to get it from all your students. But given that you have it, then all of a sudden you see like two yes, more like sections of those students. You, mm -hmm. you're, you're suddenly the super spreader, right? 
True, you but I, I don't so, think we're likely to spread. I think they also then the issue is I'm much, of course, yeah. likely to have a bad problem than my students. And, and, and I think as far as this question of who gets it, I mean, I think all these sort of like kind of like network dynamics are a huge part of that answer but also same like it's kind of eric's original kind of point is a big part of that answer is at what subpopulations is the vaccine the most effective for so, you yeah. know it'll probably the, be the most effective for you know the l- less vulnerable mm-hmm. parts of the population yeah, undoubtedly in which case we you know we should probably you know that that's going to be kind of a big part of the allocation i would guess but but we'll have to see i guess because i don't think we have that answer i mean i i think these we we've only seen sort of figures like the 90 percent the 94 percent. we haven't seen anything broken no down no no demographic age or demographics right so, so apparently pfizer is going in front of the fda later this week uh, we may get a decision from those guys beginning as early as next week and maybe part of that discussion is going to provide some of those details I did hear a nice metaphor for where we are in this thing, that getting a a vaccine, finding a vaccine is like building a base camp at Everest. You still have the actual climb to go, and that's the delivery of an effective vaccine all the way into the population. Yeah, so my question is, given what we now know, you even started us off, Kate, talking about this, that the Moderna drug, at least the evidence suggests, at least at the moment, smaller samples, we're not, there's no evidence suggests it's less effective. We know it can be stored at a lower temperature. We know it lasts longer. I hate to say this, but like, should, should we even be supporting the Pfizer drug as statisticians? Like, should all the money go to trying to amp up production of the Moderna drug, which again, we have no evidence about subpopulations or combinations or anything right now, but we right now- We have no evidence about safety, like, like yeah. side effects, right. which would be right. part, one reason to keep the Pfizer one going if it ends up being safer on a side effect sense. I I agree. I think from an uncertainty perspective, safety is one source of uncertainty, but just broadly, there's enough that we don't know that we still need to maintain some diverse approach. Yeah. I also think that there's a lot being made of the the temperature. I actually read a little bit about it. I mean, it's really just transportation. The Pfizer one requires like liquid nitrogen temperatures, tanks that are cold, but we're not unused to that kind of thing in this country. We do ship things very cold. Um, It can sit in in the local pharmacy or your local medical office or hospital's refrigerator for a few days without going bad. It's not like it has to be delivered at that minus 80 degree uh, temperature. Helpful. Um, and the second thing is, is that, come on, we're ensemblers here, right? Do we put all our eggs in our basket? We make predictions. No, with no we don't. No, so we, we, I, I would never want to shut down one. They are very similar, by the way. So they're both messenger RNA, um, right. and they both work the same mechanism. What I'm, what's curious for me is, um, where are the others, and how far are they coming? How far are they away from re- producing their results? And those are much more traditional um, uh, vaccine that vaccine approaches, which I think the virus based, virus based, and I think they're much more comfortable in terms of the kind of immune response that your body will have and the kind of side effects that you could potentially um, create. I think that there's a lot of concern with the mRNA virus, I mean vaccine that. Once you give it to uh, hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions, you're going to start to see the tail events, those rare things. And we don't know what those look like. We do know what the tail events look like for the standard vaccines. And yeah, they're not threatening. But a threat, I mean, we could be seeing, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff once you get into the one in 100,000, one in 500,000, one in a million domain. I mean, we, we, we should expect it, right? It's not that we could mm-hmm. see it. We should expect it. And, and probably we should do something to inoculate ourselves against overreacting. Yes. Because at that number, you're going to get some freak cases. And I don't think you'd want the freak cases to keep you from. Yeah, I was just going to say that what I was referring to is suppose I told you, you know, as a statistician that 
you know, in some sense, it was, you know, in, I'll use the language of, you know, control charts and industrial engineering. It was three sigma safe. Okay, well, that means 99% or a little over 99% of the people could be fine. Okay, so 1% of 100 million people are not going to be fine. Well, that's 1 million people potentially <laughs> that may be in. So when you start doing that math, you start to say there could be a million people with side effects here that actually, and you know, maybe it's one-tenth of one percent. Okay, yeah, or, or so now we're talking about 100,000 people. You, you, like, like, let's say it's like a one in 10,000 chance you get multiple sclerosis from this. <laughs> That's like 10,000 people that you've given. I mean, it's right. still, a, 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 it would still be considered societally a disaster. But, but I think, I think the, the actual trials will uncover one in 10,000 events. They've already given it out to 40,000 people. Um, I think by the time it gets to us, for example, it'll be given out to hundreds of thousands of people. The one in 10,000 events will be well, approximately- Well, Assuming they're immediately detected. But, but let me just finish this. Point. When, yeah. would you, when would you individually, this is a great exactly. point. Exactly. When would I want to take it? And so here's the issue. We got to steal society following Cade with the one in 100,000, one in a million events. That's not three sigma. That's more to four to six sigma. Let's put it in baseball terms. We're talking about four home run games. We're talking about 50 game hitting streaks. They're going to happen when you give it out to, to 10 million people. And yeah. those things don't happen in a lifetime of baseball, but How they will happen wor- in 10 million vaccines. How many healthcare workers do we have in this country? About 5 million. Uh, of uh, doctors and lawyers. It's so we all agree people. that they're not the lawyers. Doctors line. Are they going to yeah. unfortunately also be kind of the quote unquote, you yep. know, the, the, the they're going to be the test, the test yeah. set for these like <laughs> rare events too. Yeah. But I think they also, but the thing is, let's put it in perspective. You've got to understand and uh, is that these are going to happen, but, but bad things do happen. I mean, and that's just part of life and you have to accept it. And someone's going to get, as you say, maybe multiple sclerosis. That's not an argument in and of itself to kill this by any stretch. No, but I think it, it's, point, a, it's a reasonable policy discussion to have. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, I think Cade points, Cade's point's an important one, which is people don't understand probability well. And there, in many cases, and therefore, you know, God forbid, as Shane said, if 500, 1,000 people get some serious side effect, yeah, but it's out of 100 million or 200 million people, yeah. that might yeah. be beyond any reasonable, that would be great news. If I gave you that odds right now, yeah, you would yeah. take it in a minute. Uh, yeah. but, but for good reason, society's reaction to 1,000 people with some serious side effect is not going to be favorable. Right. Adi. Yeah, well, I think it's also important is we're going to get simultaneous events. We're going to get pro hoc ergo propter hoc. There's going to be somebody who oh, takes oh, the oh, vaccine. Oh, that was a bunch of that was a spell. You just cast a spell. I, 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 I cast this. I, I, I use some Latin. Um, it's uh, <laughs> something that happens immediately before we generally think is caused the thing that follows. So what's going to happen is someone's going to take the vaccine. And then within days, they're going to get some illness or some some kind of misfortune. They're going to be unrelated. But because they happened one happened immediately before the other that's going to cause confusion and this is one of the reasons why the anti-vaccination movement was able to have legs even though there was no science behind it because enough people were observing that they would give their children a vaccine and then within days weeks certain short amount of time they started to manifest signs of autism and people completely got confused by those those events, which do happen rarely. And so we're going to see this happen here, and it's going to be an anti-vaccination movement. And we and I don't know what role we can play to stop it. I mean, I mean, well, I still saw a commercial on TV urging people to wear their seatbelts. <laughs> a society where we still have to be encouraged to wear our seatbelts. Yeah, I think the vaccine is going to be 
a tough sell on a lot of people. <laughs> okay, oh, yeah. guys, you're this is you're depressing me the longer we talk about this. Re- real quickly, are we too quickly moving on to the vaccine stage when we have case numbers going through the roof right now? They are We're going through the roof. Like- where our hospitalization, you know, we've got a lag. What's the lag? Uh, 10 days or something? Two, two to three weeks. I, I, let me tell you. It's already baked in. Right now, it's baked in that we're going to be a complete disaster in terms of hospital resources a week from now. Yes. I, I can give you a report of our local hospitals. HUP is full. HUP, they're, they're, the, HUP Hospital University of Pennsylvania, is, is COVID ward, if you will, is full. Its ICUs are doing fine. That, that I heard was, uh, is, is they're not overwhelmed. They have space and resources. But the actual spaces in the bed for the hospital are full. Um, I heard from an ENT, uh, emergency medical t- uh, technician here out in Narberth, who told me that um, Lankanau Hospital, which is my local hospital, is full. They have no more room for more COVID patients in their COVID ward. Obviously, there's expansion uh, that's possible. But this is our local area, and we're not considered by any measure to be overrun. No. So there you have it. Yeah, I I think also, Cade, what you bring up is important, which is, you know, the good case scenario, assuming no side effects slow things down along the way, is it's probably five to six months before a large fraction of the population, let's say us, we probably won't even have an opportunity to get a vaccine, even if we wanted it before April or May. Mm-hmm. So you're still mm-hmm. talking five or six months. If you believe, you know, let's, a, let's call that 150 days. If things keep going the way they're going and 1,500 uh, to 2,000 people potentially pass away per day, you're talking potentially another 300,000 people that could die before this vaccine is actually distributed widely. And by the way, it's not like the death rate's going right to zero. Let's be clear about that as well. Well, I know IHME has been controversial, but of course they've continued to try to refine their models. And I just I just pulled it up in the middle of this conversation, and their their forecast for U.S. COVID deaths between now and March one, so not even that far out, Eric. You know, we're talking about four four months, four and a half months, is four hundred thirty eight thousand. That's an incremental two hundred thousand over the next four months. Yep. It's, it's, oh, that's it's, my average. That's my average of fifteen to seventeen hundred a day. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I, I guess we need to, I mean, it's, I'm just noting that we've jumped to this next round of conversation whenever we've got a lot to go through between now and then. And there's still a lot of policy levers that are available to be pulled. I mean, Philadelphia just announced today some more, some more closures and some tightening down. You know, some governors who have been very anti any kind of tightening have decided to do some tightening here kind of belatedly. So maybe some mechanisms are going to be in place to help turn this thing over. But it's, it's, um, if we didn't have the vaccine, we'd all be obsessed about these numbers. And so it's just, it's an easy thing to lose track of right now. All right, guys. Well, sadly, all that's super relevant and will stay super relevant for a while. So we'll keep on covering it in the fourth quarter of this show. Kind of the, the context we think about as context for the, our lives is a context for our sports lives. But we do have sports to talk about. So that's going to wrap up the first quarter of the show. we got a couple of open segments coming up talking about whatever sports have caught these guys' eyes over the last. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second quarter here. We're full strength, four quarter shows just out of a COVID-19 and a bit of election analytics conversation. Now back to the world of sports, guys. Got a couple of quarters on the world of sports. Uh, I'm curious what caught your eye, even though I suspect being good good masters people around here 
that it might have had something to do with Dustin Johnson. Like, what's what's what was your take on the weekend? And and Eric, you know, I did think about you because you've got some pretty strong choke hypotheses on the record in the past on Dustin Johnson. Did he did he did he did he shake that reputation for you? No. So, but let me let me just say let me just say why everybody knows why I have this hypothesis. So, prior to winning the Masters, we're going to count the Masters. Prior to winning the Masters, he had 24 wins worldwide in one major. So my comment was just, that's a lot of wins to only have one major. And just so you know, um, we've always talked about Tiger as the ultimate closer. I think something like, you know, 55 times Tiger's going into the final round of a tournament leading and he's won 53 of those times. Well, up until this Masters, Dustin Johnson, I think it was four times, maybe five, I forget, went into the final round of a major leading and didn't win any of them. Okay. So this, and in fact, he even brought it up in his post interview where he won. So let me say what concerns me. And I think there might be an asterisk next to this masters. Okay. Uh Oh, really? Well, I'm going to give Jeez. you the asterisk. So everyone has said, first of all, he broke the scoring record. He said, well, what's the asterisk? You mean the good asterisk? The greens were not masters type greens. The speed of the greens was slow. Um, guys would hit the ball onto the green into the wrong location on the green, but because the greens were so soft, the ball would plug on the green, not bounce at all. And so this is your classic hit it hard, hit it far, and then just drop the ball down on the green. And matter of fact, every player, including Dustin Johnson said, when the masters is played again in five months, you have to forget everything that happened at this masters because the greens won't play the same. The course won't play the same. It gave a premium for length and it gave a premium for, in some sense, just getting as close to the green as you could and just landing it somewhere on the green. It sounds like a good recommend, a good recipe for a DeChambeau then, huh? Well, the challenge that DeChambeau had, by the way, was interesting. I've never seen this in all my years of watching golf. So he was at minus three. I think it was in the first round. And he hit a ball. It was a 350-yard par four hole. He hit the ball 330 yards, not in the woods, in between the fairway and the trees. And they couldn't find his ball. I've never seen that before. So he had to go back to the tee and Eric, hit did, again. Is, is, did, did you never see it before? Because usually there's a gallery out there. And it well, hey, there's usually a gallery. Usually, right? There's usually a gallery that would just say, the ball's there, the ball's there. Or the gallery might be standing where he actually yeah. hit the ball. Yeah. Yeah. Or there'd be so many marshals there that someone would say, oh, Mr. DeChambeau, your ball's right over there. And so Wait, to I, be fair, to be fair, this was pointed out by some people ahead of time that the lack of gallery could work against these long knocks who don't worry about where it goes, because without a gallery, yeah, you probably ought to worry. I understand hitting it into the woods, but this was hit into the rough and mm. they couldn't find not like two feet of rough or like four inches of rough and they couldn't <laughs> find the ball. I don't okay, drive like, very far, and this happens to me like four or five times around, I have to say. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's always in the rough with me, so that's a little bit of a different like dynamic. But uh-huh. but I will say uh-huh. the following. This was a record-breaking Masters. He had the lowest score ever by two strokes at the Masters. Um, he actually – you might say he didn't win by that much. Actually, I didn't realize this. So he won by five strokes. Well, that's the most in 20 years since Tiger Woods won the Masters – well, in 97, he won the Masters by 12 strokes. Yeah, but this even is, this... in 2001, I think he won the Masters by six or seven. Actually, to win a major by five strokes is uh, – it's unbelievable to win a major by that many yeah. strokes. Yes. 
in there because that we can talk about how it was, you know, not a typical Augusta court tournament, but everyone's playing, playing the same course, and he and he beat those guys handily. And so I'm surprised that you're a little bit reluctant to give him to give him love for that. Also, well, I, I mean, on this, I, I, on, this um, on this choke on this choke thing, real quickly. I mean, isn't there room? For, do you think that once a guy's a uh, do you think a guy's ability to play under pressure is fixed? It's a no. trait. It's set for his career. Or no, might I a guy get better or worse at that? No, I, I do not. And I let me just say the following. I think, I don't know if he'll lead five times. I think in the next 10 years, Dustin Johnson will be in contention at a lot of majors. And I think his conversion rate will be higher than the conversion rate he's had in the last 10 years. But I yeah. think also just back to the conditions quickly, it plays to his strengths more. So it's not that everyone wasn't playing the same course. Of course they were, but it, it's strongly supports someone that's a very long hitter that it definitely supported. And it also supports someone that in some sense, um, you know, he played good. He had good iron play. No, he played great. He was great. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and and the one way in which the course supported, like, like if you believe that Justin Johnson did have some kind of mental choke kind of issue, this particular masters was also like, like how much of that in general with golfers is associated with crowds. Right. With performance in front of a ton of people. That's that, you know, that's that's why a lot of people choke. You know, I mean, who knows about Dawson Johnson specifically, but that's a thing. And and, you know, was this Masters ideally sued for him getting over the top, not just because of the course conditions, but because there wasn't a giant group of people to kind of make him nervous or anxious or whatever was leading to him choking before. Talk talk about something we're not going to have a sample size to study. That's that's interesting. Well, we might have Um, it for the next Masters. No, no, that'd be awesome. Please no. So a couple, a couple of the notables there. So Dechambeau made the cut on the number, but ended up far back. And um, you know, it's a lot of people didn't like some of the things he said ahead of time. So you know, this plays like a par sixty-seven for me. And so there was some, there was some Schadenfreude with the, his play. Any, any, did we learn anything about Dechambeau in this tournament? Does it? Do you update your? forecast on on how he's going to do in the future in anything. I think he's I think what you're going to see from DeChambeau and this has been already in his career it's if he's not going to be a guy where you're going to look at 20 tournaments and say wow he's in the top 10 in every one he's high variance so my guess is literally high variance I think you're going to find there'll be weeks where he's going to win there'll be other times he's going to miss the cut there's going to be other times um but again winning is what matters to these people it's not about the money they care about wins and so his view is, I, and I agree with that, which is go for the high variance play, win as many big tournaments as you can. Who cares yeah. about these other tournaments? That's yeah. what he should be doing. Fair enough. I'll tell you one guy for whom winning isn't the only thing he cared about, and that's 63-year-old Bernhard Longer. Oh, that was wonderful. Who beat DeChambeau. He played, he, he, he was giving up 100 yards of drive to the guy, and he beat him for the tournament. He beat can Tiger Woods. He beat Tiger Woods. Can you believe, can you believe that guy just keeps going and going? You got to love, you got to love seeing it. Um, all right, guys. Um, I understand that. Oh, well, there is some baseball news before we get to your baseball news. Theo Epstein turned, uh, stepped, stepped down. So just news this afternoon, Theo Epstein architect of the Cubs first championship in 108 years back in 2016. And before that, of course, the GM in Boston who brought Shane Jensen and the Red Sox fans to World Series championships after almost 100 years without it. So uh, you just don't see that kind of drought busting 
at two different places. It's no, I mean the league should did. mandate that he has to go to like Cleveland or something like that, or like you know one of what you know, or, or I guess that would be the long. That's the longest. Cleveland has some pretty smart people there, by the way. Run the no, I mean it wouldn't be a bad place to end up. I mean I've already heard though it's probably wish casting that uh, the Phillies are going to make a run at him. Mm-hmm. Well, he's he's saying that he 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 could imagine a third chapter, but not anytime real soon. I mean, what do do you update your position on Theo? After the last four years with the Cubs, I mean, have we? What, what's your assessment as he steps away, at least for a little while? He had this phenomenal, ridiculous, unbelievable. I mean, Fortune magazine called him the best leader in the world, above Pope Francis and Jack Ma, after he won the second <laughs> World Championship. So that's a little bit much, but he does have. I mean, come on, he busted Sports those captures our imagination. <laughs> okay, so do you have? Is there any information in the last four years with Theo and the Cubs? Well, I, I mean, as far as them not necessarily getting back yeah. to kind of their championship, yeah. I, I don't I don't particularly I mean, I think, you know, I think in baseball, um, I mean, unless you are the Dodgers or Yankees, I think you kind of have to go all in in certain sort of phases of an organization, you know, like you can't always be all in. And so I think they kind of he both in Boston and and in, and in Chicago kind of built up teams went all in at a good phase of kind of when, when, when they, when they had the do talent to do so, but it's hard to kind of keep those teams together. And, and yeah. so I, I, I feel like, you know, both in Boston and in Chicago is kind of the natural evolution of a well-run franchise. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, so no, I don't take anything away from it. You know, the fact that the Cubs have kind of fallen apart the last couple of years. You know, okay. it, baseball, it's, it's, it's one of the most, uh, it's a sport where spending is probably most correlated with winning, unlike, you know, the salary caps that you see in football, which kind of puts them out of the game. And you, and, uh, you have to be clever how you spend your money, but it, you can't just spend your way into a success with football. Basketball also, because there's salary, cap, salary caps on the top team. It's just whoever has LeBron James, and that's whoever wins. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean I'm, no, I'm, I'm just Basketball, the players but, just kind of choose where they but play baseball, But baseball, you can spend a lot, absolutely, and you can, it, it ultimately correlates with winning 0.4 or so. I mean, most of that's in that, in that middle zone. I mean, if you spend very little, it's hard to get out of it. And if you spend a lot, you know, teams like the Yankees and the Dodgers are always contending. But to just four years of not winning just doesn't mean that much to me in baseball. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. basically my observation. Observation. Yeah, and, and, and not win and, and you know, building kind of a successful kind of perennially playoff team and not winning at all also does not, I think I mean, I think we 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 put too much weight on that kind of very, you know, chancy kind of stochastic playoffs at the end. Yep. I mean, you know what Mark Shapiro ever did in Cleveland in like the early two thousands, that was a very successful yep. team back then. They didn't put it all together to win, and so we don't think about them as much, but Right. And and know. remember that they were, you know, whatever, an out away from beating the Cubs back in 2016. That's right. Um, all right. Also in baseball, some were there some most valuable player awards? Is that is that what was it that's just been announced? Yeah. So they, there has there were most valuable player awards, which is always I always find it very interesting. Uh, this year was a pretty much of a slam dunk in the National League with Freddie Freeman, who had a sensational year. But in the American League. It, it, I thought it was um, there were a bunch of viable candidates. And what and um, to me, it's always very interesting to see, well, how are the, the baseball writers going to integrate analytics into their 
assessments. I mean, the traditional way of doing things, I actually just researched this old school, most, most valuable player was kind of the best player on the winning team. And that's kind of it. That's how it went. By the way, that's, that's still football and uh Heisman trophy. I mean, historically it kind of had to be that way because the Yankees had like the top 10 players in baseball for like (laughs) decades. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And they always won. So, I mean, yeah, it was by construction going to be one of them, but you know, and then of course it was replaced somewhat later with with the gaudy statistics, those RBI totals, the the home run totals. And then there's been a push to move away from that sort of Mike Trout leading that push where he's collectively thought to be the best player, yet isn't winning the home run title, isn't winning the RBI title, mm-hmm. isn't winning the batting title, isn't in, in the running for triple crowns, yet he just does it all so well. And so there, so he's been winning um, these MVPs. But this year, it seems like we're kind of reversed ourselves. Um, a little bit with Jose Ramirez and not Jose Ramirez winning uh, Abreu winning Abreu was the RBI leader, right? It's like that statistic. Here we go again. Although I have to say I'm very torn because one of the reasons why we don't like the RBI statistic, it's very context dependent, right? And it's not, you don't, someone who drives in the runs, well, you have to be in the right batting order in the right spot of the batting order on the right team. But on the other hand, well, you know what? Don't we want to reward people for being successful when they did the job as opposed to, trying to figure out, well, what they will do in the future. I mean, one of the analytics have done such a good job is, is separating the numbers which describe the past between the r- numbers which are generally useful predicting the future. And they're very much not the same thing, particularly in baseball. Yet, on the other hand, I, I kind of like well, that. And, and, and I mean, I, again, I think it comes down to the, va- the word valuable is unfortunately kind of nuanced. It could right. it, it, Valuable could refer to past or future sort right. of value, Right. And so, yeah, I mean, if it was kind of the highest achieving player or something like that, like I, I agree, it would be kind of, it would be nice to have sort of a war that was much more delineated towards like this was the best performance in the oh, 2020 so, 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 season. One, let me just add one thing to that. Um, usually, so I think what, Adi, what I interpret you're saying is, and, and this is more about Cade's expertise in decision-making, when you have a fairly flat maximum, in other words, I think it was pretty clear Freeman you know, was the best player in the National League. Right. In the American League, when you have four or five players, what when you have four or five players... And none of them, like, none of them kind of dominate or stand out particularly. decision-making heuristics. Oh, let's pick the guy with the top RBIs. Let's pick the guy with the highest on-base percentage or something like that. This is classic decision-making when you have a bunch of similar alternatives and decision-making is hard to use a simplifying heuristic. Trump, you, I mean, sorry, uh, Trout usually makes it easy by dominating all of those categories right. simultaneously. He does. I mean, so actually, if you look at it, I mean, I, as a Yankee fan, you know, DJ, uh, an infielder playing tough positions um, in the infield, whether it's second base, uh, third base, shortstop yeah. or first base, dominating the OPS boards. Um, uh, but he didn't. And having a 364 batting average, he clearly got trumped out by the Abreu's uh, 60 RBIs, 19 home runs. Short and season. also, I mean, like LeMayo, uh, he suffers again. It's the most valuable player. Is, is LeMayo really with the most valuable player on the Yankees? Would you no. call him that? I no. mean, I think he was this past year. What do you know? But, but again, is he the, uh, depending on how you define valuable? I mean, right, obviously, right. Aaron Judge is a more valuable player. Well, certainly going forward. I mean, if I had to pick the two, I'd probably pick right. Aaron Judge. But again, again. That's right. But I mean, the thing is, so interestingly, Jose Ramirez, he kind of dominated. I mean, he was a great hitter, but he's also a great fielder. I mean, he was a sensational fielder mm-hmm. this year. Yeah. Now, I always wonder when those metrics are going to ever make its way into the MVP. Is he for, he's first base though, right? Ramirez? No, no he's third. No, Abreu. Abreu. Abreu was first base. Abreu was, was terrible fielder. Yeah. 
And it's yeah. like old school. That's what I said. Old school, terrible position, first base, terrible fielder, uh, RBIs and home runs. Wow. Okay. That's mm-hmm. back, back to where we were. It's like, okay, we forgot about all our education. Guys, before we leave this, can you tell us, for those of us who don't know, why Freeman was such an obvious pick in the National League? What was it that was so spectacular about his season? Um, well, let me just pull up some of the data. I mean, first of all, he played for the Braves, and they were sensational. So mm-hmm. we got to throw that out. Um, he had, a, I mean, he, he, he had by far the highest uh, weighted on-base percentage. So if you look for a single number that de- describes your offensive performance, the yep. weighted on-base percentage is it. And he, and he was the, the highest and the, in Major League And the weighted part of that is for, for, for so, extra base hits? Well, yeah, because the, the, one way to do it, the conventional way, is what they call slugging percentage, which is one, two, three, four. Uh, weights on singles, doubles, triples, homers. Ignores walks. The weighted on-base percentage um, includes walks and gives them weights which they feel are more correct for the difference between uh, single, double, triple, and a home run. They're actually quite similar. They're not drastically different. But yep. so the single number that me- measures batting, batting average, if you will, weighted for, for performance is the WOBA, the weighted on-base percentage. And he so how much better was he than – what was his number and how, what was the next person? In the um, okay, so his number was, I think, 456. Is that what number is coming up here? Um, so actually – now, I'm actually stand slightly corrected. Juan Soto had the highest in Major League Baseball for the Nationals, and he wasn't in anybody's um, game for being considered uh, um, uh, uh, the MVP, potentially because he was with the Nationals and they weren't – they weren't competitive this year. Oh, interesting. So um, this, but just yeah, to give you the more traditional stats for Freeman this hold year. Hold on, before we leave Woba, before yeah. we leave, yeah. that, so that was, an easy thing to that's an easy thing to interpret then, right? You're saying he's getting about a half of a first base. He's getting about a half a base every time he steps up. That's right. Is that right? I mean, which that's, is that's, okay, which is remarkable. Um, I mean, he was. Uh, I mean, he was a first baseman, which which would he had 53 RBIs, which is an incredible amount for a short season. Um, and uh, what else is there? I mean, he was a good fielder. He wasn't a. He, was the, he had the most runs scored as well. Yeah, I mean, and also I think the Braves. He was on the Braves, and they were, you know, they were spectacular. Although, no, again, was, but under under my chronological of him not necessarily even being the most valuable player on his team, Azuna actually is the had even fifty six RBIs this year. Right, right. Um, I also think, uh, I mean, he has a WAR figure. I hate to to trump WAR as a total because in a short season in particular, that yeah. number is a mess a mess of a number. But he clearly had um, easily the probably the highest war in the national league he had an ops uh, above one 1.1 yep yeah right, so he don't have he, the highest right. war in the national league can you guess so who will, did? Will, will there be who the highest war in the national league yeah will there be asterisk on these uh, you guys mean a pitcher probably a pitcher who it's not outfielder Oh, you mean, oh, that depends on which, which one you're talking about. Okay. So Mookie Betts probably, or you are getting yes. it. Uh, yeah, so there's two uh, different versions of the war. The actual best player in baseball. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, once you play a day with and a Boston team, <laughs> Shane has got you as his favorite forever. I, he didn't exactly have a cup of coffee with Boston. He led no, them he to the World Series too. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, okay, so let me be the rube. People love him so much, and he did so much, and he – played such a key role in the world series was he hurt all year is that why he didn't win the, the most valuable player for the team that won the championship well one of the things about baseball is we ex- i mean i don't know what the other sports do but baseball conclusively ignores the postseason it's part of the the, the voting is done before the postseason which i think is odd um and, some and, and, and also his his war specifically is uh driven a large part hugely defensive fielding yeah. so like if you just if, if you were kind of more of a traditional 
just looking at hitting statistics, I mean, he's like, I think in terms of offensive war, I think he's like, he's top 10, but not top five. Yeah, I mean, I look at his numbers just comparatively. I mean, I'm saying it a bad, good season. He batted 292, which by the way, is below his career average. He, his on-base percentage was 366 below his career average. His slugging was a little higher. His OPS was 0.927, which is obviously very good, but it's a lot different than 1.1. Um, let me just say the following. This wasn't even a great Mookie Betts year. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I'm overreacting to the World Series, clearly. You are. And the enthusiasm of my buddy Shane Jensen. You um, know, it's yeah. infectious. All right, guys. Last last question on the MVP conversation. Will there be asterisk on these guys going forward? Like, no, kind of I don't think mentally, so. if nothing else. This was enough I of mean, a season to make it feel like it's a legit. Yeah, and look at the names. We're not talking about Joe Schmoes. We're not talking about these are the, the people leading the boards are exactly the people we expected to lead the boards. And th- if any time you're going to get a, a surprise candidate, it's going to be in a 60 game series. But Bonnie, if, you look Bonnie, the, if someone had batted 400 this year, would you have counted it? No, I would not have. But that's yes, not so what we're, we're talking about. That didn't you, happen. If there was a particularly extreme historical result, which there wasn't. No. Or if somebody out of like absolutely nowhere ended up being kind of one of the MVP candidates. Yeah, maybe okay. there, there would be an asterisk, but I guess it kind of went by chalk in this kind of sense. It's, yeah, right. That's no amazing. record That's set. That's, you know. Okay, we have the event coming up at the NBA draft. Is anybody June activity, right? And we have this thing freaking landing on us in November. Um, we also had some interesting activity in the NBA. It's, it's trade deadlines are happening. So Chris Paul moves from Oklahoma City. Sam Presti continues to accumulate the most ridiculous pile of draft picks going forward. So in, any reactions to any of this stuff that's going on in the NBA? Will you pay attention to the draft? Is it interesting to you? I'm going to pay somewhat attention to the draft because I'm always interested to see uh, who goes where. I'm also interested to see the trades that are made on draft day. Um, I think that's interesting. Um, it's also interesting to always hear the, I'll call it overconfidence that you hear in the draft, that this player is a can't miss player, um, et cetera. But the, the straight, <laughs> can't miss the strangest trade I heard. And I, and I put it on our rundown. I just don't get this. So a player we used to have with the Sixers, Robert Covington was traded from the Rockets to the Blazers for two first round draft picks and Trevor Ariza. I just don't get it. I mean, Robert Covington is not that great a player. He's like he's ranked like 143rd in the league in player efficiency rating and win uh, wins above replacement, and he gets traded for two first round draft picks. I don't get it. Well, oh, maybe, maybe, maybe maybe Houston feels the same way about you about the first the, for those first round draft picks. They're they're a lot more missed than they are uh, can't miss. But no, I agree. That's a crazy. That's a but crazy. the market value of them is higher. Yeah, even no, if they that's are, right. if they can, are. Can I just point in about the draft? I'm no no expert in basketball draft, but the little that I do know is that it descends really rapidly after the top two. It's I don't believe it's anything like the football first round, where Very frankly different. a bunch of first round draft picks is fantastic. Um, but you know, there's really not such a fall off from the top. You get the seventh or the eleventh or the twelfth. You get a lot of value. Is it so valuable to a basketball team to be picking up first round? Remember, only two rounds. Well, I mean, like yeah, but the drop. I mean, the, the drop off after one and two is more dramatic, but it, it keeps dropping into the second round. It yeah. does, right? So, I mean, I mean you know, first round pick is still better strategy? than not having I mean, one. Is it this a rebuilding is- strategy? I mean, did it work for the for? I mean, the, the, of course, the Sixers really went all in on this strategy for many years. Where's their championship? Where they're co- they're competitive? I mean, well, let's just to be clear, Adi, it makes a lot of sense for the Rockets. I was saying it makes no yeah. sense for Portland. 
What's okay. Portland doing trading two first round draft picks for Robert Covington? Right. Who, that was my point. So let me, let me ask you a trivial question. So and ESPN has a model. Our buddy Paul Saban over there has a nice article out this week on the analytics of the draft. They project players' performance. It's neat. They use a number of different stats to, and, and expert opinion to project performance. If I were to say that the forecasted number one pick, there's kind of three guys vying for it, but Anthony Edwards you might consider to be the favorite to be the first pick. What probability would you put on the number one pick of the draft playing at an all-star level on his first contract. So in the first few years in the league, he's going to be playing at an all-star level. Say first four years, what probability would you expect? At, at one point in time, and he makes at least one all-star Yeah, at team. some point in time in those, in those four years, first he makes four an years. all-star. Yeah. All-star team, I mean, definitely about 50%. I mean, I, I, doesn't somebody I, from uh, every team we... have to go to the all-stars? Is that true? I don't know the answer to that. I, 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 I would predict that. lower because I'm just a pessimist when it comes to these things. And I always think there's more noise than you can imagine. So I'm going to go 25%. I, I was going to go, I was going to go 50%. Okay. Okay. So what's true is this guy, the forecast, so this is a neat, neat model. Again, I recommend it. Paul Saban at ESPN, neat, neat article. Their forecast is 41%, but they, they also say it's lower. It's one of the lowest in the last 10 years. The, the top of the draft doesn't look as strong as it has in the past. But I thought that was a good, like, kind of calibrate you for what the expectations are. It goes back to your point, Eric, about overconfidence. The rhetoric around these picks is can't miss rhetoric. is just so, is so misplaced. All right, it'll be fun to look at. That's happening, that's happening right now. That's happening this week. It'll be a fun little way to, to dabble in the NBA in November for a change. All right, guys, that has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Zoom edition, full two-hour strength edition, and a whole crew edition. we got everybody here. Audie Weiner's over there. I think he's visiting family in Massachusetts, but he's here for you guys. He showed up. Shane Jensen in his library at home. Eric Bradlow in his office at home. And... Me, Cade Massey, in my office at home. Good to be here with you guys. As always, we just rolled out of talking about kind of the miscellaneous quarter of sports, golf, basketball, baseball. I'm sorry. I don't really mean to put baseball in miscellaneous category. But we got the main event now, some football. Let's do a little college before we move to the, the grown-up slate, the professional slate. Is anybody paying attention to college? Do I need to sell you guys on college getting kind of interesting? Because I think it is, finally getting a little bit more interesting did anything you can be honest with me here did anything this past weekend catch your eye about college football you can be honest no i watched uh indiana play again yeah, um those exactly. guys are doing some weird thing i uh, some unconventional things in the big 10 right that's kind of exciting that's right indiana's kind of the story it's one of the great stories probably the biggest story of the season so far they're undefeated they're beating teams they've never beaten whatever combination it is michigan michigan state wisconsin and penn state i'm sorry Penn State, Michigan, Michigan State in, this, in the same season before, like never. <laughs> it's a long time school, never. And they've done it. Um, they, they're, they're, they're playing hard. The, the people like that, that coach. And uh, it's going to be interesting. So you get all excited because people now think they're prop, they might be the second best team in the Big Ten, but they've got to go play the, you know, universally acclaimed best team in the Big Ten this weekend. And so you're thinking number one team in the Big Ten against number two team in the Big Ten. What's the line? Is that going to be a competitive game, guys? Is that going to be fun? Should we be paying attention? Noon Saturday, you can dial in. Well, you might be disappointed to know that the line is 19 and a half points. So 
Um, hopefully Indiana can make a show of it because that's disappointing if that's the best game in the Big Ten this year. But, it, you know, dial in for the, for the story. It is one of the best stories in college football right now. Okay, what else? I think the part that's interesting about the Big Ten is how bad Penn State and to some yeah. degree Michigan look. I mean, yeah. sure. You know, that, sure. it's, it's, it's just so much. They were supposed are, are, to. Are, are, those, are, are those two teams, like, like for example, that Michigan-Ohio State, that big battle that always happens at the end, is the, is, is the line on that going to be kind of historically, you know, big yeah, right. for, oh, for that question. kind of matchup, right? That's a good question, Shane. It could be pretty ugly because those programs are on opposite ends right now. I mean, people are wondering about Jim Harbaugh's job. You know, a couple of weeks ago, it was, uh, you know, you know, it's only in the distance that you heard little murmurs, and now people are full on talking about Jim Harbaugh's job. Penn State is, it's just one of these, you, you know, this is such a weird year. We shouldn't draw super strong conclusions from programs because of COVID, because of injuries. They've been hit pretty hard, and it's shocking to see them with this winless record, but it is a pretty tough road that they've had so far. The other thing, you know, in, the, in a couple other things in the Big Ten, it has been fun. In some ways, they've been the most interesting conference. They're not usually the most interesting conference, but Northwestern, also undefeated, mm-hmm. so had a stellar defense, back, you're hearkening back to like the 95 Rose Bowl days with the defense. They have a big game this weekend against Wisconsin. Yeah. Wisconsin, you know, they've played like two games, I think. They played a game. Their QB looked great. Then they got some COVID-related complications, canceled some games. They came back. We've only seen them two times. If you look at the power rankings, look at ESPN's FPI rankings, and they're like third in the country. You look at, at Bill Connolly's S&P Plus, and they're way up as well. So the power rankings love Wisconsin, and we've barely seen them. It's amazing. They go into uh, Evanston this weekend. They're seven-point favorites against Northwestern, but who would have thought that Evanston would be in the same ballpark with these guys? Given, there's, given the undefeated teams that are sitting there in the Big Ten West and the Big Ten East, isn't there an extremely high likelihood that there will be in there at the end of the season, meaning even after the Big Ten championship game, there will be at least, though not least, there'll be one undefeated team from the Big Ten. Like, is there any chance, given there may be two undefeated teams playing each other in the Big Ten championship game, given this short number of games, et cetera? Like, can we almost slot in a Big Ten team as one of the four playoff teams at this point? Is there, forget whether Ohio State's as great as we might think. Isn't one of these Northwestern, Wisconsin, Indiana, Ohio State, isn't one of them going to be undefeated at the end of the well, season? Well, Let's I mean, just, I, could, I, I could give a narrative where they, they, uh, they don't make it, which is like, you know, um, you know, Wisconsin beats Ohio State to be to be the only undefeated team, but they've, you know, that's like their fourth game of the season or no, something like that. Them. And like, you know, well, they, they don't look particularly impressive in doing it, though it would probably. You're telling me an undefeated, that, that would be, you know, I'm Mr. Doomsday when it comes to college yeah. football. If yeah. Wisconsin was 4-0 and had beat Ohio State <laughs> and won the Big Ten championship and did not go to the playoffs. Well, because it depends be on what else is out there, right? That'd I mean, amazing. What you know? it'd, be, it'd be fun just to, if you want, if you want chaos. Here, maybe, so there'll be, maybe, maybe there'll be like four Four SEC teams at like four and zero or something like that. Coming well, they have two. to play in the big. They have to play in the SEC championship game, and so there can only be two there. Eric, let me give you let me give you some analytics on this because I'm going to lean on FPI. So ESPN's FPI is a fantastic system. It's as good a quantitative system as you can look for in college football. They in their power index, they also run out some simulation results, so they'll give you the chance of winning out. They, they said so the deal is I think you probably assume too high a probability of winning out. So let me just give you some numbers from the Big Ten. Ohio State is three and zero now. Their win out percentage is forty six point five, according to ESPN's FBI. Wisconsin two and zero. Their win out percentage is thirty one point six. 
uh, dropping on down deeper into their conference. Man, you have to drop a while. Iowa is 16th, not undefeated. Indiana, there we go, undefeated, 17th in the country, according to FBI. Their win out percentage is high. No, that's not. No, 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 no. It's 0.2. So, no, even after you throw oh, a lot they of have to play teams, Indiana, by the way, assuming they actually play the games, is playing Ohio State and Wisconsin. Yeah, they got a bad draw. Of course, they got the bad draw because teams, the conferences built these schedules quite strategically. They didn't know Indiana right. was going to be good. They were supposed to be part of a, a, a nice draw for those teams, right? That's right. <laughs> That's, right. That's exactly what, what was supposed remember, to happen. Remember, my comment was, remember, so for example, Northwestern Wisconsin are in the Big Ten West. They're playing this week. One of those teams will still be undefeated after this week. Then Northwestern's remaining games, for example, are at Michigan State, Minnesota, and Illinois. So I'm just commenting. I said, I, I just said at least there's a good chance. I don't know if it's 50%, 30%. There could be an undefeated Big Ten West and an undefeated Big Ten East team playing in the Big Ten championship game, given how few games. Reasonable, reasonable chance, reasonable chance. I like, I like Shane's chaos factor of, yeah, but what if they've only played four games? <laughs> but, well, speaking of that, speaking of that, the Pac-12 is now in the conversation. And it's been fun to have them, probably most because Oregon looks so good and they're fun to watch. So um, Joe Moorhead is the offensive coordinator out there. He was, of course, the guy that, uh, that Franklin pulled into Penn State and, re- and revolutionized their offense. He went down to the SEC for a couple of unsuccessful years as a head coach. Now he's the offensive coordinator at Oregon, which, of course, has a history of exciting offenses. And that team is looking a lot of fun. They've got a short schedule. But is it possible if they run the table and who is going to stop them in the Pac-12, what does ESPN give them for winning out? Right now they have Oregon ninth in the country, and their win out percentage is 43.8%. So 44%. So flip of the coin that Oregon runs the table, I think they're a pretty serious candidate, especially if they do it in fun, exciting, impressive fashion. I think they're fortunate that in some sense we talked about this. The Big 12 is not going to have an undefeated champion. So Mm – if the Pac-12 and the Big Ten have an undefeated champion, take your pick from the ACC, then the SEC, that's your four. If if that happens, I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm saying I think they're going to take an undefeated, even if it's 6-0, I agree, it's 6-0. That would be it's the record. Be, it's going to be super 7 7-0 with the championship game. They're going to take it an ha- undefeated Pac-12 team and an undefeated Big Ten team. They're going to. It helps that there's not the Georgia look as good as they have in the first thing is they come out of the East, but they're on their plate before going to the SEC title game. So it helps that there's not this juggernaut next to Alabama vying for like a second SEC spot. But Eric, I know you're always pulling for the group of five. Um, we have a couple of interesting group of five games this weekend. I think that the slate's finally more interesting. I'm trying to bait you guys. So Cincy, people are saying Cincy could get it done. Cincy undefeated so far. Where does ESPN put them on the on the power rankings? Fifteenth, they have them above that run of Big Twelve guys. I mean, the, of Big Ten guys, they put them fifteenth in the country with the win out percentage of twenty five percent. If they did it, that'd be complicating to the conversation. They go to UCF for years now. UCF, of course, has been the Group of Five candidate, yep. and since he's going to have to go through them, they're a three point favorite going down there to play in Florida. The other thing that's interesting, this is really kind of in the um, novelty category, but Liberty of all things is ranked in the top 25, little bitty Liberty. And they have already knocked off, I think are two power five teams and they play another one this weekend. They play NC state this weekend in Raleigh and they're underdogs, but only a field goal underdog. So Liberty is trying to continue to make noise. Liberty of all things, Hugh freeze is their coach. You may remember Hugh freeze. 
I mean, he'll only be their coach for about another 15 minutes because he's someone's going to snag him. But Liberty is somebody to pay attention to. Finally, last one this weekend. This one completely snuck up on me, despite the fact that I live in Big 12 country. Bedlam is this weekend. So Oklahoma State is going into Norman to play Oklahoma, the big rival game in Oklahoma. Oklahoma State is at the top of the standings in the Big 12. OU got those two quick losses, and people kind of wrote them off, but they're going to jump back in it if they can stand up to their rivals. Everyone talks about Oklahoma State. OU kind of under the radar. What do you think the betting line is? Sooners by seven. Wow. Old, old traditional stuff, despite all the noise this year. So that's, that, is, that is usually a very fun game. It's a strong recommendation for the, for the late game, 7.30 on Saturday. OU um, hosting Oklahoma State. It'll go a long way towards determining one of the, one of the teams in the Big 12 championship. All right, guys, uh, that is the rundown on the college side of things. I know y'all have been paying attention to the NFL side of things. Tell me what caught your eye this past weekend. Well, I mean, just to kind of make the connection with Oklahoma, does it, is it hard for you to cheer for Kyler Murray? Um, yeah, hell yeah. That guy's a punk. Are you kidding me? Because, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my oh, goodness, oh, I find oh, him really oh, fun to cheer <laughs> for. Oh, my. That, was that out loud? Um, yeah, he's actually fun to watch. I mean, I mean, he's I've, and I've been saying it for a few weeks, frankly. I mean, Cliff Kingsbury was I was no huge fan of his when he was at Tech either, but I love what he's doing in Arizona. And you know, that receiving core, it's just a fun team to watch. And then they go and do that. Are you kidding? Yeah, I mean, that was one of the I mean, most that ridiculous was, ends of the game I've ever seen. I mean, it's ridiculous on both ends of the field. I mean, Kyler mm-hmm. Murray just to get that ball off and then Hopkins to make that catch. I mean, one of the great plays you'll see in the history of the NFL. I mean, really, really something. And by the way, they got the kickoff with 34 seconds left. Right. I mean, Poor Bills, they made this great final run. It looked like they did this great thing. And then 34 seconds, I mean, the NFL really has become college football when the lead isn't safe with 34 seconds left in the game. Um, can, I, can I ask a question out of ignorance? Uh, how often do these Hail Mary passes get caught in the end zone in this way? Do I have a background? Well, to be Technically, I don't think this would be considered a Hail Mary because I don't think they really thought it was the last play of the game. And it wasn't the typical well, there were only, send no, there were three only guys – there were only eight seconds left when uh, when the play started, so this was. I mean, uh, pretty close, <laughs> right? This wasn't. Yeah. This was going to be the last play. If, well, it's surprising they would send. They would if it's a hell mary. You don't usually hell mary to one receiver. You know, they've got one guy in that corner of the end zone. It's kind of interesting that it turned out that way. I mean, maybe Murray got flushed that direction and would have preferred to go to the other side of the field. I don't know, but it was you know one guy for their team and three for the other team. So it was a un- unlikely. So Hail Marys, back to your and question. Answer, and answer your question, they are rare. I mean, like, you know, 5%, I would say, 10%. I don't know. Yeah, I, that, I would be, that would be what that I would right? guess. Yeah. 10%, though, you know. I mean, and especially, and especially the kind of context of this one where the – I mean, who knows how you do the calculation, but the quarterback was throwing against – the grain, the grain of his body somehow through like onto like 60 yards. And, and, and the receiver had three – was triple covered and still caught it. Right. Well, I mean, that, to me, I mean, Cade made the observation that this is a, you know, uh, all-time, you know, favorite kind of play. I'd like, I'd like it, it to be more than – Okay, yeah. but it's, it's many factors. You know, but here's the thing, Adi, is because yeah. – so it was – right. So the base rate – let's go with a base rate of 7.5%, a blend of okay. Shane's 5 and 10. I was going to say 10. I right. think it's probably a little high. But he got it off. So you got that, but then you got – okay, the quarterback goes to great efforts to get the ball off. Mm-hmm. That adds a lot of flavor. And then Hopkins – he high points this thing. It takes it down over three other guys. I mean, that's unusual. Usually they bounce around or something. I think the combination of those events makes it feel. Well, let me just ask you a question. So Matt, our producer, thank you, Matt. Um, just put in our chat. 
According to NextGen stats, this pass had a 16.9% completion probability. I, I, I'd, I'd read that somewhere. It just, I, I don't, I, I, that doesn't pass the smell test to me. Hold on, why not? That That's way too high. To way too uh, high. Way too Triple high. coverage? <sighs> like 60 yards against your throw, uh, you know, against your body? Like what, wait, wait. Coverage? Okay, so here's, here's the... At what point in time are you saying 16.9%? Yeah. When it leaves his hands. When it leaves his hands. Are you saying before oh, the just, started? Are you saying once he released the ball and on, and Andre Hopkins and uh, DeAndre Hopkins and two three other guys are going up for the ball? No, like, that's yeah. not how it works. I don't think this next. If, if it was just the catch part, when if it was just the catch part and the throw is not factored in, then I could maybe believe. Well, that's what they're saying. Matt's saying yeah. when it leaves okay. his hand. All right, the ball left his hand. Yeah, but they, they they're using the entire trajectory of the of the ball to make this calculation. Right? No, they're really uh, using. I mean, positions it's probably J. Yeah, it's probably just like positions of the players. Yeah, proximity the players. Uh, here's the thing about the three guys. One guy wasn't there until. In fact, I think the last guy in kind of knocked off one of the two guys. It's not clear to me that that third guy hadn't come crashing in that one of those Bills defenders wouldn't have been able to rest that ball away. I kind of feel like the guy got knocked off of him. So maybe that has something to do with the position. Yeah. That, that third guy wasn't there when he let, let go of the ball. All right, okay, so that's one play. Let's just be like the rest of the media and just talk about one play from last weekend. <laughs> what, what else? What else, guys? Uh, we saw the Eagles lose to the Giants. I don't know what you yeah, guys made of that. Pretty. <laughs> yeah, I, I, actually, I, I do want to talk a little bit about it. Like, you know, I mean, like I, you know, I mean, the NFC East continues to entertain. If you're uh, not a team of any, a fan of any of those teams, it's a very entertaining <laughs> division to kind of watch. Um, is Wentz like kind of permanently broken now? Yeah. You really? Think so? Why would that be? I think. I, I mean, I'd be interested in Shane's thoughts too. I, yeah. I think he's taken a huge number of hits. I think he. Um, he actually is not as accurate a thrower as people thought he was. So actually he misses lots of, he misses lots of open receivers. Um, and also, um, you know, he makes high risk passes. He throws a huge yeah. number of interceptions and fumbles the ball quite often. He's so, lost a lot of accuracy in his decision-making as Eric was talking about. Yeah. It's just much worse than it, it was kind of like, pre-injury so you you know i mean you could just argue that that injury basically like met you know has you know he 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 is just permanently broken i mean the only counter argument is would you know could uh, in a different system a different scheme i mean you know his downfall kind of also coincides from when frank reich left the eagles as offensive coordinator went to indianapolis and of course is doing great things in indianapolis so you know, but could I, Carson Wentz in like, you know, with a better offensive coordinator and a better scheme succeed again? All right. So I'll give you an over under right here. Here's, here's an over under. So the season's half over or more than half over five and a half wins for the NFC's champion. <laughs> I'll take the under. Under, I, right. So I, you're I, taking I, the under. So all the Eagles have to do is win yeah. three of their oh, yeah. last Seven games for that to happen. Oh my God! That's or the amazing. Giants just have to win three out of their last six. I yeah. mean, right? It's going to be under. Don't count out the Cowboys. Andy Dalton comes back, and because they again, they only have to win like three or four games. It's a crazy division. I agree with well, that. So, so just to give you some power index details for that, three of the four teams are in the bottom six teams of the league. So, yep. Giants at twenty seventh. Redskins, I'm sorry, the Washington football team at, at 29th, and Dallas Cowboys bringing up the tail end at number 32. It's remarkable. So Eagles are looking like a juggernaut at 19. 
Um, so, been, so this is, let me yeah. tell you, let's transition then to the, to the Buccaneers who played well, but this is what a lot of people are saying. And it relates to another topic, which is Drew Brees' injury and Jameis Winston having to play the second half. And now he's going to be starting probably for a number of weeks for the Saints. Um, yeah. People are, are talking, if the one seed is out of the question for the Bucs, which it's not at seven and three, it's possible they could be the one seed, but it's not looking likely. A lot of people are saying, please be the five seed, please. Because then you play the NFC East winner in the first round and that team we know stinks. So <laughs> if you're not going to get the one, which by the way, if they increase the playoffs to eight teams, by the way, which means the ones which they're talking yeah. about doing and the one seed doesn't even get a buy, I'd rather play the Eagles in the first round than possibly the being the one. The only, the only, the only counterpoint is although that NFC East team is going to be bad, you're playing them at their home. Like, so you, you would be trading a, you, you'd be giving up a home game Correct. in order to play what you consider a low quality appointment uh, opponent. And I, I mean, I agree. They are like historically bad over the NFC East. So I probably would do that myself, but it's, that's the kind of trade-off I think. Uh, one of the it was super interesting division, I think, for for maybe unusual reasons, is that the Steelers keep on chugging along nine and zero, and the Ravens are really looking like they're struggling. So, you know, the Steelers practically a lock now for the playoffs, almost a lock for the division, and they've snuck up to number two in Massey Peabody. Ravens picked up their third loss. No, I, and the AFC, I you know after after the Patriots somehow beat the Ravens, I started getting like playoff hopes again, I, and then I went in like that nice. Thankfully, 538's already got their little playoff scenario simulator where you can plug in yeah. the different results and see what happens. Um, and basically, uh, e- even yeah. with that wonderful victory, yeah. it's, a lo- it's a real long <laughs> shot, in part because every single second-place team in every single AFC e- division, the second-place team only has three wins. Three, uh, three losses. losses, sorry. Only has three, three losses. losses. Exactly. That's so, I mean, it's like the, that battle for the wild card is between like, you know, basically four teams with incredibly strong records. Um, so I just don't think, yeah, I, I mean, I think Baltimore is going to be one of those teams and, you know, kind of looking ahead to this upcoming week that Baltimore yeah. Tennessee yeah, right. is one of the kind of key ones as far as kind of thinking ahead to the playoffs. So are you surprised that the Ravens are six and a half point favorites there? So they're home. We're getting, they're hosting the Titans. This is an exact replay of their first round yeah. playoff last loss last year six and a half point favorites versus the titans i mean the titans did look kind of not so I, I mean you know the titans did lose last week to the colts as well and didn't look particularly impressive in doing it but no i i am a little surprised by that line i, I and i think it's it's what we're all feeling we're, you know they were so dominant last year that it's hard to wash that out of our system you know I, we yeah. keep expecting baltimore to go back to, yeah. going back yeah, to this team right. this dominant team that's right yeah, I was so, just uh, the the bank the Titans start off five and zero. Oh, they're one and three in their last three games, including getting blown out. They got beaten almost by two touchdowns by the Bengals. I watched a lot of that game. They barely beat the Bears. They got blown out by the Colts. I don't think the Titans are actually that good this year, okay. and so I'm not surprised that Baltimore's whatever a six and a half point favorite in that game. Okay. That sounds about right to me. Okay, we don't have it that far off. We don't have it quite that long. We don't have it that far off. Even Guys, in Baltimore? Uh, even in Baltimore? Even in Baltimore, yeah, yeah. Even with the uh, – well, we give them full strength, but no. So uh, the, there's a number of interesting games. I like that the marquee game is going to be – I mean, it seems to me, Arizona-Seattle on Thursday night. What? Of course, Seattle's, what? Seattle's taking a big – You mean uh, the Rams at Tampa Bay? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a I'm, huge game. Sorry, Eric. Yeah, well, no, you know, I, I, I just – you know, I mean – 
you know, I, I, Rams or Tampa Bay has wild potential wild card kind of consequences. Or division. They're two fun teams. Yeah, I, I, I just, you know, Arizona Seattle is much more of an outright battle for the division, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe, it's, but, maybe this, but also, I mean, I've kind of caught up in the Arizona buzz and I haven't let go of the Seattle buzz, even though they've been dropping games left and right. I agree, but uh, both those games are really, both those evening games, Thursday and well, Sunday. Look, how about the, well, let's, let's take a look. A great, there's three great out of time slot out of the one four o'clock games. There's Arizona, Seattle, which you mentioned. Kansas City, Las Vegas is the Sunday night game. That's no, that'll, be fantastic. Be that'll be fun. So let's talk, let's pick those each real quickly. So Arizona, Seattle is a Thursday night game. Um, Seattle's favored, despite all that's been going on. Seattle, three and a half point line. Who you got? I'm going to take Arizona. I'm going to take Arizona. I'm swept up in it. And I mean, they, <laughs> Seattle's looked just really bad, really bad the last few weeks. So I'm going to take Arizona. Seattle. All right. Um, now to Eric. So let's, let's hold Eric's for last. Kansas City and Las Vegas, number one team in the league, according to Massey Peabody and everybody else. Six and a half point favorite against the Raiders. Who do you got? Kansas City. I mean, I mean, you know, Las Vegas is the one team that has beat them all season. But no, I, I think Kansas City is just. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I think Kansas City's got a vengeance. And I think I think Kansas City is the much better team. I like Kansas City and giving the points. By the way, Massey Peabody is right on top of that spread. So no strong opinion, but I, I share your intuition for sure. OK, fine. Finishing with what Eric considers to be the top game of the weekend. The Rams, Massey Peabody's number three team. Let's get that straight. Goes into go into Tampa Bay. The Bucks are three and a half point favorites on this. It surprises me it's that much. Yeah, I mean, I, I get. I'm. I, I'm gonna take. I'm gonna take the Rams. I think. I think. I wouldn't take the Rams against a well coached team, but I'll take them against Tampa Bay. Yeah, I gotta go with the Bucks, but tough game. And I agree that spread's ridiculous. That spread's ridiculous. We're on the Rams there, but good fun. So, Eric, you've talked me into being excited about the NFL slate. I think we have good slates both Saturday and Sunday. Heck, we have a good Thursday night slate as well. All right, guys, that's been another Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. We do it every week, and we're going to do it for another quarter yet. We're going to do it for next quarter. We have Brian Burke rolling in here to talk football analytics. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now, our interview segment. This week, we have Brian Burke joining us, longtime friend of the show. Always enjoy the chance to talk with Brian. He's a football analyst and writer. He's been on the frontier of football analytics, really, since he, since he made his name doing his own thing. And uh, He's been with ESPN for a few years. He's deep into next-generation stats. You've probably read him in a number of different ways, but glad to have a chance to visit with you. Brian, welcome to the show. Good to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Always happy to have you on here with my longtime colleagues, of course, Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow. Um, you're you focus on the NFL mostly, so of course that's what we want to we want to talk about. Something that you, you can't help but see these days from you is this run stop win rate thing you're doing. So every week you're kicking out these new updates on uh, offense side, defense side. Who looks good against the pass? Who looks good against the rush? Who looks good? passing and rushing new nice analysis can you tell us a little bit about it and and what advantages it offers sure so it's based on the player tracking data from the nfl which you mentioned next gen stats um and a couple years ago maybe three years ago we introduced uh pass rush 
win rate and pass block win rates uh, for in individual linemen and a team level we could use the tracking data to kind of grade out each block and, and see, see who was blocking, who, uh, who won the block. Was it a double team uh, and some other things. And it, it was, it was pretty successful. Uh, our phone started ringing right away uh, from, from various teams and they, they wanted the full list. And uh, we were really happy with that. And it was um, pretty obvious that the next step would be to do something analogous with, with run the running game. And we intended to do that, but it turned out that the running game is just so much more complicated than pass blocking and pass rushing that it just took a long, long time. And I had to learn a lot first uh, before I could really dive into it. Um, So it it took about two years to do in total. um, And uh, we we rolled out the finished product uh, before this season. And uh, we think it's, it's a pretty strong, pretty strong model. So to, to begin with, let me, let's just make sure we understand, you're talking about doing all this algorithmically so that it happens real time, automatically. It's standardized across all plays, all players. That's the kind of the, the reason for doing it, right? Yeah. So we, you, I mean, the, this goes back to when uh, Gruden was doing Monday Night Football. He would ask, like, why isn't there a stat for linemen? You know, we've got yards and touchdowns and everything else for all these skill position players, but we don't really have anything for linemen. Um, so I think this adds just a rich, um, kind of rich detail to the part of the a core part of the sport that that's generally overlooked. Um, of course, you do have sort of qualitative graders like scouts and yeah. pro football focus have been doing this for years where they'll grade the players on the plays. And there's definitely advantages to that. I would, I would suspect that, you know, head to head, they, they're going to be able to see a lot more on video than what I can just see with the dots. Um, but, right. but a model like this does have its advantages. Like you mentioned, you know, kind of like Bill James mentioned decades ago, right? Like you just cannot watch every single at bat by Barry Bonds. Like it's just, it would yeah. take forever. So, you know, that's where the stats are really helpful. And so we're looking at, you know, hundreds of blocks, uh, in an afternoon, uh, almost instantly and grading all those. So, you know, the scale and the speed and also the objectivity. So, right. Yeah. There's, there's no reputation involved. Uh, right. You you can't fool it. You can't trick it. So, um, there are some advantages. Okay. So two clarifying questions. I'm having to fend off my, 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 my colleagues here because everyone's trying to dive in, but just real quickly, two clarifying questions. Yeah. Just an example of what exactly it's coding. I mean, what do you know when someone wins or not? How does the computer algorithm know? When someone yeah. wins? And the second question is once you've run all these numbers and sorted all the players, what do you do to make sure you've got it? You've got something valid. Okay. So, two different questions there, but I, I'm sure that, I mean, these guys will jump in here in a second, but I want to get a little bit more on the table before we open. No, those, those are good. Those are Audi questions. <laughs> um, these are hard. So, okay. The first question was like, basically, how does it work? So it's not a traditional machine learning model. Like you might be familiar with like a regression or a neural network or anything like that, that we don't have training data that could teach a model. Well, why, Brian, just to interrupt for a second, this was yeah. going to be my question. Why couldn't you use pro football focus as the supervised learning and see if you could train against that? Well, a couple of reasons. It would be expensive. All um, right. That's a good but, reason. Second reason is we, we basically we would be teaching it 
we would be teaching any model of those whatever flaws that pro football focus has. And I'm, I'm not being critical, but w- whatever subjectivity and, and sort of errors come along with, with that approach would be in basically just introduced into the model. The model would just learn those as well. Um, so it, it's a, it's a rule-based model. And what we're looking at is we're trying to, we're trying to decide whether or not a defender is effective or not. Um, we do have tackles, but there's so much more you can do in the run game uh, to be effective against the run uh, than make the tackle. So we're, we're trying to detect those things. So um, we're trying to detect when a, when a defender can control his gap, uh, when he gains penetration, um, when he does what's called a force or, or contains the edge. Um, okay, so hold, also, on, hold on. Make, tell us, like, give us one of those and tell us exactly what's going on because it still feels really abstract. What do you mean a defender protects his gap? Like, what exactly was the algorithm picking up on? Yeah, so it, it's it's looking at it's looking at the angles and distances and speeds. Uh, there's a lot of like maybe undergrad physics involved. Um, so I had to go back and learn all my dot products and scalars and vectors and all that stuff. Um, so it's looking at all those angles and distances and speeds, and it's looking at a few things. So I, you can easily identify the gap, the gap from you know lineman to lineman. Yep. Uh, you can, you know, so so we're we're just writing rules basically um, with logic in, in a computer algorithm that can d- detect that. So when when a defender is clogging his gap or controlling his gap, um, or is is he being pushed back five yards? deep back into his linebackers or um so, you know. so does a for any given play a given player on a play a defensive tackle how many rules do you have for that guy <laughs> and, and so the the three tech probably has a different set of rules than the nine tech or whatever like in general what's it what's it ballpark what's it look like well there's there's probably there's like four meta rules like i was mentioning before control your gap Etc. Yep. And yep. then within each one of those, there's probably about 50 different rules. 50. Um, yeah, but some of them are like, so, so imagine, you know how like a decision tree would work, right? Like you, you split, you split the, the problem set at, at some break point that separates, you know, your, your positives from your negatives. And basically I was a human decision tree. So I, I would animate these yeah. plays. I, yeah. I created software that can animate all these things and would highlight when the, the algorithm is saying, Hey, this is a win. This is a loss. It would, it would show me that and it yep. would in the animation. And so I would say, Oh no, that's not right. That, that doesn't yeah. look right. Yeah. Um, and so I would create a, another rule that kind of split yeah. that set into another segment. And then I would, Oh no, that's too much. Right. So I have, I have to kind of segment that yeah. segment into something else. So it, it, yeah, it's a win when this happens, except when this happens. But, but except when this happens, it is a win. So there's, it, it becomes you, convoluted. I, that makes a lot of sense. How do you know when you're done? And, and uh, when it was when the season was about to start, <laughs> yeah. so we, we made it. We made it as good as we could. Uh, I guess your second question is is another. Well, hold on, before, you, before you go to the second question, yeah. um, what about? I mean, look, you've watched a lot of football in your life, but I don't think you played defensive line. And so so some of it is something anybody can look at, but at some point you have to appeal to people who know these things and do it for a living, right? Like how did you, and when did you incorporate other people's expertise? Yes, I, pl- I did play defensive line in oh, high school. 
I played and uh, we had a five, two and I was, I was on the outside there. Um, and I had one job and that was don't let anybody get outside. And that was that's all I did. Um, and I was a terrible football player, but uh, <laughs> I played all four years of high school, uh, but this right. is completely different. I, I almost nothing I, I remember from high school applies here. Uh, so we, we, I'm fortunate enough at ESPN to have access to some, you know, former players and coaches. And I, I talked to a few people, of course, uh, but honestly, the resources that are freely available online are amazing. There, there are amazing uh, websites that yeah. chart plays and grade plays and, and tell you what this play is, what that play was, um, what this guy did right, what the, that guy did wrong. Uh, so it was, it was Brian. Common. Give us give us an example. Give us an example of something you learned about defensive line play as a result of this project. Just one small thing that you didn't understand before. What's an example of one thing you didn't understand before about defensive line play that you understand now? One thing you oh. learned from watching this or talking to others or listening to people on the internet? I don't know. Uh, let's say like a gap exchange, right? So when, when you have uh, two defensive players and they will uh, kind of trade gaps um, or, or one is basically trying to bulldoze uh, an offensive lineman who is assigned to block the other guy. He just, he, he basically he like almost kind of makes the block against the, the, the block. Right. So this is a stunt. This is yeah. a type of stunt. Freeze up. Um, so you might have, um, you might have situations like that. We might, we might talk about Aaron Donald in, the, in a few minutes, but you know, that that's an example where Donald, you turn him into an edge rusher, basically, from, from the three-technique position, from the defensive tackle position, uh, doing that. Okay. So, Brian, it would seem like one of the things, and you even mentioned this, was it would seem like play recognition would be important because how do you know, as a, I'm a defensive lineman, what my gap responsibility is on a given play? I might – like, here's an example. The other team's planning on running a screen pass, and as a defensive player, wow, I busted up that play and got really far upfield. Yeah, until the screen pass went over my head and the guy runs for 50. And so how do you know what the play is and what the responsibility is? And wouldn't you argue that while you can automate that somewhat, that this is an advantage. I'm not, by the way, I'm not a shareholder in pro football focus or anything like that. I got lots of criticisms of it, but there someone can look at the play and possibly do it. So how do you bring in what the play and what the responsibility was to do that scoring? Uh, Well, yeah, part, part of the uh, model can identify the, the play on the offensive side so far. Uh, we can also do things like, you know, know what the front was on the defense. Um, but as far as like a defensive play call, that's really difficult. Um, so we can tell, hey, this was, uh, you know, uh, inside zone left, inside zone right, outside zone. Uh, this was a power guard play. This was a counter play. Because of the way the running back, let's say, chose to run, which could be because I screwed up and therefore the running back chooses to – I'm just saying – I just want to know, I'm just trying to get an understanding of how complicated this as it's That's the Cade's question. You can make this infinitely complicated and not get anything done, or you can. So how do you make those trade-offs and choices about how complex you want to make it? Um, well, I think the, the important thing is to, is to, I guess, the point I'd like to express is we don't try to infer individual player responsibility. We're uh-huh. only, we're only looking at execution. So we, assu- we assume that the player is doing what he's supposed to do. And then we simply 
great execution. And we think that's, that's a great, you know, leap forward, let's say, um, on its own. Uh, and we don't pretend like we are inferring what he was supposed to do. I'll go a step further at the pro level. It's very, very uncommon for them to really blow assignments. It does happen, but it's not college and it's, it's not high school. Uh, these guys, they're pro, they're, they're pro, they call them pros for a reason. But could this be part of, I guess, kind of to follow up on Eric's kind of question, could this be part of what makes kind of made your like kind of evaluation of like run blocking and, 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 you know, kind of the running game more difficult than, than pass blocking, you know, in, in part, because I, you kind of imagine that um, scheme plays a bigger, like pass blocking. I mean, you know, have to know it's a passing play, but otherwise like, you know, whether it's, going to a post or going, you know, to something else is not, you're probably your pass blocking assignment is relatively similar. Whereas with run blocking, of course, the actual scheme of the run is hugely important to the execution of that play. So I can imagine in a blocking kind of sense, run running is the running game is, is more complicated just because the scheme is so much more important to the lineman. Yeah. So the the approach I took was, um, we, we started from the defense. So no matter what the run play is, no matter how complicated that the, the run scheme or whatever is the, the running, the run stop element is, it's pretty much the same is, is control your gap, contain the runner. Um, mm-hmm. You know, try to penetrate the backfield uh, to try to, what they call spill, try to force him outside. Mm-hmm. And then the, mm-hmm. the horse player comes in and cleans up the, the play. So there's that's, that was the starting point is that fundamental kind of is universal and then um, grade the defenders or are the defenders doing those things? Yes or no. And then we look at the, the blockers and we say, are the, which blockers were responsible for those defenders and then, you know, grade, grade each accordingly. You, you, you generate these numbers and, um, and you feel good about it and you fit all this time on it. And then how do you validate them in some sense? How do you know that you have something that's good? Yeah, well, we send it. We send it out to a number of people that just sample plays randomly chosen, and and those animations I mentioned, and and say, hey, great, you grade these. You say where the models right and wrong, and that was part of the iterative process of developing everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was that was one way. The other way was was a word I I learned on your show um, from Josh Hermsmeyer, and I asked him the other day. I was like, hey, what was that word you used? <laughs> it's called face validation. So. Uh-huh. You know, we, we looked and we were, we were pretty satisfied that the players with great reputations in terms of blockers and run stoppers uh, were at the top of the list and guys who were, you know, kind of known, you know, weak in that area or were at the bottom of, of the list. So maybe, Brian, related to that, maybe two follow-up questions. How correlated is this metric or measure with, let's say, salaries? Are people, is an efficient market? And, and kind of the second thing is, suppose I can't build the complicated model like that. Could I build a proxy for that? Like, how correlated is it with just number of tackles or something else that's kind of easy to measure? Yeah, uh, I don't know about salary. Salary is so weird in the NFL because you have these constraints on the rookie contracts. Um, but what we did do in, in terms of validation, some, we did other you know, normal statistical stuff that you would do, like how, how, how reliable is it like from year to year? What is the year to year correlation? And so just was- let, let's stop that on the second because that, this is just such an important general point. And a lot of our listeners would, this would be second nature, but some wouldn't. So in some sense, this is the first statistical test you would bring, right? You want to know 
how persistent this thing is that you're saying is a fundamental ability. If it is a fundamental ability, then you'd expect it to stick one year to another. So what did you see there and what would you have deemed like acceptable <laughs> um, on this point? So the year to year correlation is about as high as you get in sports. So like, that sounds good. 0.05. 0. 0.6. <laughs> so it's R, that's not R squared, that's R. But so things like in baseball on base average or ERA or, or maybe not ERA, but, you know, WOBA and those, those sorts of stats in um, baseball are, are basically top out around 0. 0.6 or so. And that's what we got for run stop win rate and, and okay. run block win rate. The other okay. thing that I, I would like to mention, the other kind of part of the validation was we looked at you know, actual outcomes. So we said when there's no run stop wins on a play, we expect that the, um, the gain, you're going to have a large gain. If there's one run stop win on that play, you should have a slightly smaller gain and two right. run stop wins and so on and so on. And it should decrease like that according to the number of run stop wins that we, that we assess on the, on each run play. And yeah. it, it worked out perfectly. It was, it was something like seven, maybe seven or eight yards. If there's no run stop wins, it's like six and a half. If there's one, it's yeah. about five yeah. yards. If there's two and, and it was just okay. totally monotonic. So th- those are, there are all kinds of good indications that we, we were kind of onto something really systematic and meaningful. All right. We're talking to Brian Burke. Brian is a longtime football analyst with ESPN. Now you can follow him. If you, if you, if you're not already, you should follow him. He's one of the great, great Twitter follows. He's at BB at B Burke ESPN at B Burke ESPN. Burke has an E on the end of it, by the way. Um, Brian's a long time friend of the show, been doing this stuff for a while. He's really on the frontier with the NGS, partly because you have that partnership with NFL. I mean, you're like one of three people in the world who get to play with these data. I mean, people, you do make people mad that way, Brian, you know? Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, Adi, that's, he, he, he wants it. I know everybody wants it. Uh, it's one of the big reasons I chose to go to ESPN is yeah. because of the wealth of you know, resources they have. And, and um, uh, honestly, I was intimidated at first uh, by the data uh, before I had even seen it. I knew it was going to be really, really hard. And I knew that the kind of tools that we need, you know, it's like neural network stuff and computer yeah. vision things. I, I didn't really have those in my toolbox yet. And so right. I used to say like, oh, this is, this, this, don't worry about this. Just, just talk to me about fourth downs forever. And, and uh, <laughs> don't worry about player tracking stuff. And it started showing up. Um, and we, we gradually, it took us almost a full season to just wrap our arms around the data and just like, yeah. what, what do we have here? What is this telling us? What, which way, literally, which way is up? Um, but we, Brian, is, am I remembering correctly that you have an engineering background? I mean, I, I think this, in some ways, this is a return to your training. Because I remember when you, yeah. you, 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 one of the most profound lines I've heard in seven years of doing the show is you're saying, when you first started looking at statistics, the idea of like, probability essentially changed your whole view of the world that you'd been raised in this kind of deterministic engineering background and a problem of the world was, you know, mind opening essentially, which is neat. But now in some ways this is going, this is like incorporating the two together, right? There's a big component here. Is there not? Yeah. So I was, I was undergrad aerospace engineering and, and the Navy itself, the culture is like this super high accountability type culture. Uh, so there's always a cause for everything, you know, there's always an effect that there's, um, and, uh, it's a very deterministic worldview. Um, yeah. and so, yeah, the, the whole concept of 
statistics. And I know engineers study statistics and probability. That's part of probably most curricula, engineering curricula, but at the Naval Academy, it, it's not. <laughs> it's a very billiard, billiard ball uh, world wow. uh, to me. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's, my first, my first uh, master's was, you know, heavy in, in statistics and it was kind of eye opening. Okay. So let's jump to um, what you're seeing in these data. So you, you just posted on your Twitter feed, you posted offense and defense win rates by team and you plot them for both passing and rushing and just looking at offense, for example. So after 10 weeks way out top in front of everybody doing quite well with both pass win rate and run what pass block win rate and run block win rate are three teams, the Packers, Cardinals, and Browns. Um, so how well does that correspond to what you think the typical person sees on the field? And is, are there commonalities across these three teams that would have led you to expect this? Is it a, is it a player thing or is it a scheme thing? So what's, what, do you, what do you learn when you see who does really well at this? Well, when I, when I look at the, the, the chart I sent out is I'm looking at a few things. Um, I can't, I can't really answer your question to be honest, because I don't watch enough film of the Packers or the Browns, or mm-hmm. I, I know the Browns offensive line is, is uh, they pick up um, a, a big tackle from Tennessee last year. And I, I, the Packers have had a great offensive line for years now. Obviously Bakhtiari is, he's like our number one, number one. Um, I, I can't say I've watched much of the Cardinals line play. I just, you know, I watch the TV feed sometimes, but that's, you yeah. just can't tell what I'm yeah. looking at when I look at the, like, this little scatter plot like this is I'm looking, it was like, are these correlated? Like is run and pass correlated? And um, so, you know, if you're good in, in run blocking, are you equally good in pass blocking? And then I look at the cases where maybe that's not the case, you know, that, that's not the case. So I look at something like the Kansas city chiefs are sort of way off the diagonal where yeah. they're pretty good at, at pass blocking, but they can't run block to save their life. And so right. those are kinds of things that maybe I'm, I'll use to diagnose the model and, and say, hey, there's a story in there. Maybe, maybe the model's not perfect, but there's a story and there's something going on. There's something interesting worth looking at. Um, that's what interests me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And can you take it, can you take it kind of rolling forward to infer something about the interaction between schemes and players? Because kind of historically we've thought these stats would reflect on player abilities but then we're slowly beginning to realize, well, scheme actually has a lot to do with um, how these offensive linemen do. Some coordinators put their offensive linemen in better positions than others, or skill players may put them, you know, give them advantage by confusing the other guys. So the Ravens, for example, you know, they, they seem to have real good success here. And some of that seems to be skill-based and personnel-based, but not offensive linemen personnel necessarily. Yes, I, I completely agree. I, it, and that's true of any stat, you know, that, that's just true everywhere um, in, in all sports. So uh, um, I, I don't mean it so much as a criticism as a building block towards deeper understanding, you know, cause you yes. take, you can take these, these stats and difference them with the fundamental quality of the player. However, that's ascertained and learn something about scheme and coaching, presumably. So the Ravens um, uh, thankfully performed a natural experiment for us uh, two seasons ago. So they, about midway through the season, they swapped out Joe Flacco and put in Lamar Jackson. So last season, 2019, all the Ravens blockers, including the tight ends, were kind of off the charts, number one. And we thought, <laughs> well, okay, that, that, that's a, obviously a flaw. There's a lot of scheme involved in it. It's just Lamar Jackson making them look good, right? So, um, 
So I think there is some scheme involved where the scheme is making the blocks easier. And if you're doing some kind of like a run option type offense, you basically have an additional blocker. So every single block, the, the angle on that block becomes slightly easier. Yeah, right. Um, but if you look at the, the 2018 season where, where we have like half Flacco, half Jackson, um, so I looked at, I looked at the, our run block win rates for, um, for when it was just Flacco and when it was Jackson. And it was yeah. they were significantly higher under Jackson, but they were still, I think, third best in the league under Flacco. So okay. I, I was relatively comfortable that it's, it's, at least it's not fatally flawed. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, again, I don't think it's a fatal flaw. There's, you're never going to catch it. I mean, this is just, like you said, the nature of statistics. You're never going to see it in pure form. In football, I mean, my God, there are 22 guys on the field and coaches calling plays. Pretty interesting. Brian, we could do this all day and we have to go and we have to let you go, but can you give us some sense? Like every year you roll out some fascinating new um, analysis and that you say, well, I've been working on this for 13 years and here's the result. Give us some sense of what you're working on now. Just tease us a little bit on when the 2021 season rolls around next August, you're going to say, wow, this is the latest. Uh, we're looking at like receivers and uh, pass coverage. So we, we may have a, a pass coverage statistic, individual metrics for receivers and, and, and defensive backs. We have this roadmap we put into play. We, we have this, um, yeah, this roadmap, I guess, is the best way to term it of things we wanted to do with the NGS data. And that, that was, I think, three or four years ago. And that this, you know, defensive back metric is the last thing on that roadmap. So looking forward to that. Okay. That sounds like fun. Uh, That is of course connected to the big data bowl in a way. And so you guys, you're in a horse race with a bunch of teams around the world on the, and on the, on that question, or at least related questions, but uh, it'll be fun to see. Yeah. That was very fortunate. So we will definitely take a look at, you know, some of the really interesting ideas that, uh, that everybody brings to bear there. Mm Mm-hmm. Listen, Brian, appreciate your cutting time for us. Love the work that you're doing. Of course, keep it going. Let us know what you're working on, and we will look forward to talking to you again. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course, of course. And that has been another two hours of Wharton Moneyball. We do this every week, coming to you via Zoom these days for Eric Bradlow right there, for Shane Jensen right there, for Audie Weiner, who stepped away, for Matty Datz, boss man for Deion Simpkins, the associate boss man appreciate you guys listening come back and join us next week between now and then enjoy your sports 